Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter this evening, that is verses 1 through 35. 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 35. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's Word. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in, in Teliam. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that... They utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed." Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of of, of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder 
sheep, and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would help us, help us to understand your word, that you would bless the preaching of it. We do ask that you would Help us to see that sort of obedience, that the sort of service to you that is acceptable to you, that, that service which is consistent with the word of God, which is characterized by obedience. Lord, keep us, as there are so many who have deceived themselves with regard to their service to you, keep us from deceiving ourselves and help us to uh, see that the obedience that you require is the obedience that you have commanded. Uh, help us, O oh Lord, to, to, to see this, that, that the, the service that you require is what you have commanded. And Lord, grow us in this obedience, we do pray. Even use the preaching of your word to this end. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it is, as I have just prayed, it is easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are serving God. Uh, if you were to take a poll and ask people if they loved and respected God, you would get a, a large number of, of people who would say that they do, Even probably even today in, in this country, you would get a number of people that would say that. And if you were to ask, you know, do you, do you see yourself as serving God? There would be a number of people that would say that they do. And yet, the reality is that in the country today and really in every age, there is always going to be a large discrepancy between the people who say that they are serving God and the people who are giving a service to God that is actually acceptable to God. That there's actually going to be a wide difference between uh, those two numbers, so to speak. That is to say that there are many people who believe they are serving God 
but their service to God is not acceptable to him. That it could actually be something that, that even displeases him. And brothers and sisters, this is uh, certainly a, a, an important thing for us to consider as, as it is, as I mentioned, an easy thing for us to deceive ourselves with regard to this, is to see someone who is zealous for God and think, you know, what this person is doing for God must be, must be received by God because of the great zeal with which it is being done. But remember, remember the warning that Christ gave to his disciples. He said, there is coming a, a day when many who kill you will think that they are offering service to God. The deception will run so great, so deep, that, that there will be those who will persecute those who are the foundation of the church, who are the, the, who are the proclaimers of the gospel. And they will think that that persecution is actually a service that God accepts and is pleased with. And thus we see today as well, Many will go to religious service, services. They will seek philanthropic acts of service to others. They will give themselves to various things. And yet, oftentimes, they will do these things with God actually despising them. God does not receive the service of all people just because they say that they are serving God. Many will make great sacrifices to God and yet miss this basic principle which causes the, all of it to fall into ruin. And that principle is this, it's the principle taught in this chapter, that obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, the only service to God that is acceptable to him is that which is done according to the word of God. The only, the, the only service that is acceptable to God is that which is characterized by obedience. And that was the one thing that Saul lacked. Now here we see uh, Saul's kingdom is in trouble. We, we saw that he offered an unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13, and there he was told that the kingdom would, his kingdom would not be established. At the very least, this means that he will not have descendants who will be on the throne forever. Uh, he, we also are introduced to the idea in chapter 13 that God is seeking a man after his own heart. And what we see here in chapter 15 is that Saul continues to fail. He not now with this particular disobedience, it's not only that Saul's kingdom will not be established, but actually Saul's kingdom will be taken away from him personally. He is going to lose the kingdom. He is going to lose the kingdom himself. And we will have uh, a, the man after God's own heart who will receive the kingdom in his place. And all of this we are told is because of his disobedience. Now, uh, in the midst of these chapters that speak of Saul's decline, as we think of chapters 13, 14, and 15, it's important to note that in these chapters, and even really going on into 16 as well, that there's, there's always this contrast between Saul and another person. In chapter 14, there's the contrast between Jonathan and Saul on the one hand, where Jonathan is the one who is acting like the man after God's own heart. He's the one who's faithful to God. And this is contrasted with Saul, who is generally disobedient or foolish or, or whatever else. And here we have in chapter 15, there is a disobedience of, of, of Saul again. And that is now going to be contrasted with the man after God's own heart that we will be introduced to in chapter 16, who is David. The point is, is that David and Jonathan in these chapters are meant to be described as the opposite of Saul, that there, is, there are two ways in which a person can act, a man after God's own heart and a man who is a king like all the other nations. Saul has now shown himself and revealed himself in these chapters to be merely a king like all the other nations. However, Jonathan and David show themselves to be men after God's own heart. And the thing that shows that uh, Saul is in fact just a king like all the other nations is 
that he does not, he is not willing to obey God. He, he does not understand the principle that God requires obedience and that obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, we're going to look at this passage under two headings. First, in verses 1 to 9, we see Saul's disobedience uh, as, as uh, you know, Samuel comes and tells him what he needs to do, and then Saul fails to do it. And then in verses 10 through 35, we have the rejection of Saul for his disobedience and the confrontation of Samuel and Saul where they go back and forth about whether or not Saul has actually obeyed the voice of God. Uh, so look with me then again at uh, verses 1 to 9. Now, you'll notice in verses 1 to 3 in particular, there is a command that's given to Saul uh, through Samuel. So Samuel uh, says to Saul that uh, he is to destroy Amalek completely, to utterly destroy them. Uh, the command is basically to fight against them as was done in the, in the days of Joshua. So you remember that in, in the days of Joshua, the people of God came into the promised land and there was a requirement with regard to the warfare there that they utterly destroyed the Canaanites who were in the land. They were not to make any uh, covenants with the people. They were not to spare them. They were to be executing the judgment of God. Uh, and uh, here there is something similar that's happening with Amalek. The point is that they are to be utterly destroyed. And we are told why. Uh, Samuel mentions in verse 2 that the Amalekites had fought against Israel when they had come up out of Egypt. Uh, Israel would have been very vulnerable at this point. They would have been open to attacks. And uh, the, uh, the Amalekites attacked them uh, uh, unprovoked. And this is recorded in, in Exodus chapter 17. Israel defeats them. But then God says that he will completely wipe out Amalek from under heaven because Amalek has, has tried to destroy the people of God. That's Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. And here, uh, this is to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is, this is to be the fulfillment of this. Uh, Samuel says, now with the entrance of the very first king of Israel, you are now to execute this judgment against Amalek. Now, as we think about passages like this in the Bible, in this particular passage itself, one question that we need to ask is, uh, is this just? Is it just for Samuel to command Saul to utterly destroy uh, all the people uh, who, are, who belong to Amalek? This is the sort of, these are the sort of passages that make Christians feel uncomfortable sometimes. And these are the, also the kind of passages that those who, those who uh, seek to discredit the Bible will often go to. They'll say, look, clearly this is not something that is just. Clearly, clearly this is barbaric. And therefore, you know, the God who you say exists in the Bible is actually unjust. Uh, what, what are we to say about that? Is this an unjust action from God? The answer is, uh, of course, it is not uh, a, 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 an unjust action. God is not being unjust. Uh, but if, if we we're to say that, then we have to think about how we are to understand it. How is it that we are to understand this complete destruction of the Amalekites? And the answer is, is that it is God's judgment. And uh, ironically, uh, it is not a demonstration of injustice, but actually the opposite. This is a great demonstration of God's justice. Why does God... Why does God execute judgment on the nations in general? The answer is as a demonstration of his justice. What is happening here is that God has merely appointed the Israelites to be the executioners in a sentence that he has passed against them. In this way, then, it's fundamentally the same as God raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. God, you remember there in, in the early chapters of Genesis, chapters, chapters eight and, 18 and 19, that uh, God 
goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see if the outcry against the city is really as bad as it, as it, it appears to be. God sees that it is, and then God judges them according to his righteous standard. And that, you know, there he did it with no intermediary. He didn't command a, a people to attack uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, but the result is the same. He utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The same thing is true with regard to the flood. So God declares that uh, all of, of humanity has corrupted itself and that the earth is now filled with violence. God determines in his righteous judgment that the earth now needs to undergo a judgment, that actually all people need to be wiped out because of their sins. And God executes that judgment. Now, again, there, God does not use an intermediary. He doesn't use, he doesn't appoint an executioner, so to speak. He, he himself uh, performs the execution. And yet, uh, and yet, if he were to choose to have an executioner, so to speak, that would be fundamentally the same thing. Uh, the point is that God has every right to execute judgment as God. And what he is decreeing with regard to this particular, uh, th this particular uh, statement with regard to Amalek is that Amalek was worthy of judgment. They were worthy of complete judgment, and therefore uh, God uh, was right to give this, this, uh, this command to the Israelites. They were executing uh, his particular judgment. Now, it's important to notice even as well with, uh, with regard to this, God had already said that he would judge Amalek in Exodus chapter 17, verse 15, as we, as we mentioned before. It's important to note that now we are hundreds of years after this. So in terms of the, um, in terms of the timing of when this judgment actually took place, notice God gave the Amalekites hundreds of years to repent. He gave them hundreds of years to turn from their ways. And then he determines, you know, 400 years after they attacked the Israelites, then now your time is up. Now, why, why the big gap? The answer is, is, as Paul says, the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Why is the judgment ever delayed? This, this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2. Why, why, why does God not, has, why is he not judged the world in righteousness yet? Well, why is it still in the future? Well, the answer is he's giving people chances to repent. Even the Amalekites he gave hundreds of years. You think of, of even the, the way in which this happened with regard to uh, the, the promised land itself. You know, why was it that it was in the days of Joshua that they took the land? Well, you remember that one of the things that Moses teaches is that uh, the, the sins of the Canaanites had not yet been filled up. So the idea is that God was waiting. He was waiting on, on the sins of the Canaanites to get to a point where he could say, now, now your chances are, are up. But the point is that even during that, that, that long time, like there, was, there would have been generations and generations of utter sinfulness where God waited. He waited to give the chance to repent. But at some point, God says the chances are over. And if God chooses to do that, he is right and good when he does it. The point is not for us to shake our fist at God and say, God, you are not just. The point is rather for us to see and fear and to recognize that God will judge the world. God will judge the world. And we have to recognize that we ourselves will stand before the judgment seat of God and that God will show no partiality to anybody. And he has shown us this by these repeated judgments that come all throughout uh, the Old Testament. Now, the other question that we need to ask with regard to this is, uh, is this a genocide? Uh, others will, will try to say that this is a genocide and therefore uh, it is wrong in this, in this regard. There is a key difference between this and genocide. Uh, genocide is a murder of a people because of the hatred of that people. So the idea is that there is something that you consider inferior or not right about that people. Uh, and it's not for something that a people has done. So it's merely for who they are. This judgment 
where the people are destroyed is not because of who they inherently are, but because of what they have done without repentance. God sees the heart. He sees that they have sinned. He determines that, that they are, it is right for them to be judged, and therefore he executes the judgment. All of the Amalekites are, are being destroyed, but it's not because they are Amalekites. It's not, it's not inherently because they are Amalekites. It's because the Amalekites as a people have all sinned in ways that warrant a judgment. So it's, it is, it, the point is not to be a genocide, uh, and, and it is, in fact, even quite different from a genocide. Further, it's important to note even further, uh, God does not reveal himself to mankind in the same ways as he did in the Old Testament. There are no longer commands of this sort uh, to, uh, to destroy an entire people as a, as a forward-looking uh, prophecy of the, the coming judgment. Uh, God has given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what Paul says in Acts chapter 17 is by raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, he has declared once and for all that the judgment will in fact come. And therefore, there are no longer these sort of like smaller instantiations of judgment that point forward to this final judgment. And therefore, we, what we could say further is that there, is, there can no longer be this kind of war today. That any, any attempt at this sort of war would in fact uh, be unrighteous and would not be an execution of God's righteous judgments. Uh, and that any attempt to do so would be basically equivalent to someone claiming to be an executioner while he is not a vowed executioner and to execute judgment according to his own, his own wishes and desires, which would, of course, we would recognize is a violation of the Sixth Commandment and murder. That is not what's happening here, though. Uh, God has executed a judgment. He commands that the Israelites uh, execute the judgment on his, on, on his behalf. Now, one other thing to note then, if we think about the spiritual element then of the command in verses 1 to 3, that there, that, that there is then this judgment. This is a manifestation of the righteousness of God. It's important to, to ask then, what was the sin that the Amalekites committed that caused God to bring this judgment against them? This would be an important thing for us to consider as this, is, uh, as this would be uh, something that God would want us to heed as we, as we think about his righteousness. And the answer is, as we think about um, Exodus chapter 17, it was opposition to the people of God. It was fighting against the people of God. When Amalek came to fight against the people of God, God took that as Amalek trying to fight against God himself. And herein, there is a great principle that we need to, to understand and keep in our minds. Uh, even as, as we think of, of the relationship that this bears, even to uh, what was said to, to, to uh Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. This is true for Abraham, but it's also true for the church. Those who bless the church are blessed, and those who curse the church are cursed. And this is what we're seeing here. They cursed and attacked the people of God. And God said, because of this sin, there will be a great judgment. It is one of the things that God takes very similarly. Uh, God takes very uh, uh, is very serious to God. Now, the same is true in the New Testament. Christ counts over and over again. We see this in the New Testament that Christ counts whatever is done to his people as being done to him. Whatever is done to the people of God is done to Christ. And therefore, the thing that we can understand, what, what we need to understand about this particular command in verses 1 to 3 of 1 Samuel 15, is you need to think very carefully about the way in which you treat another Christian. It is, it is significant. What, however you treat another Christian, anyone who calls upon the name of Christ, Christ takes that as treating him that way. If, if you curse another Christian, you have cursed Christ. 
and you, you, you bear the, the guilt of that sort of sin. This is the reason why it was judged so harshly here in the Old Testament and the reason why it is judged so harshly even in the New Testament. And so with that background then, that, that's what, what Samuel says to Saul. He says, you know, now it's time. We're going to, uh, you are to, be, to execute the judgment of God against the Amalekites. So in verses 4 and 5 then, Saul musters the, the, uh, the Israelites to come against Amalek. You'll notice that they have an enormous army this time, over 200,000 foot soldiers, uh, much more than, than they had when they were fighting the Philistines in the previous chapters. Uh, then then uh, Saul calls on the Kenites to leave in verses 5 to 6. You'll notice even here, there's the emphasis on how the people of God retreated. Uh, they, the Kenites are spared because they specifically blessed Israel. So they, they are spared because they're blessing of Israel. Amalek is cursed because uh, they cursed the people of God. Once again, there's the division about, uh, with, with regard to how the people of God are treated. And then we have uh, what Saul actually does in verses 7 to 9. So Saul defeats the Amalekites, but then we are told that he spares Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, and so on. Uh, here, uh, once again, Saul is implicitly being compared to Achan. You remember that in chapter 14, um, Jonathan had said, my father has troubled Israel, uh, a clear reference to what, what Achan had, had done in the days of Joshua. Now, too, as well, we have uh, Saul is supposed to be conducting warfare just like in the days of Joshua, and Achan was the one that, that messed it up, that made it so that the people of God actually come, came under judgment themselves until that issue was resolved. And now we are being told that Saul is doing something very similar. You remember that Achan had, uh, very similarly, the people of God, when they went into Jericho, they were supposed to utterly destroy Jericho. Achan had taken some of the things that were devoted to destruction for himself. So therefore, he's not obeying the Lord and he's taking the spoil for himself. Now, Saul is doing the exact same thing. He, they are supposed to utterly destroy now the Amalekites uh, rather than, than Jericho. And yet he is receiving, he is taking for himself some of the best of all the sheep and the oxen, and he has spared even uh, Agag, the king who is the leader of the Amalekites, who are the enemies of God's people. And this is disobedience. And of course, then this will set up the rest of the discussion on the chapter uh, where Samuel comes to confront Saul about his disobedience. You'll notice in verses 10 and 11 that, that uh, God reveals uh, to Samuel what he is to say. And he says here, in verse 10, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Uh, God says that he greatly regrets making Saul king. Uh, there's a very clear link between this regret that God is said to have and Genesis chapter 6. It's the same language that's being used. Uh, and there, you remember what 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 the result was there was that God destroyed the whole world with, with the flood. And now we are meant to recognize that when God uses the same language, that now a judgment's about to come as well. Now, we're actually going to return to this verse next week as uh, the language of God repenting or grieving uh, is, is significant, and even it's significant within the, 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 uh, the flow of the chapter. So I, we're not going to touch it here because it's a big question. So uh, uh, next week, we will deal more particularly with that. But the point of the language is, is, is simply to show at this point that a judgment is coming, that God is not pleased with what Saul has done. Notice even here how Samuel responds. Samuel himself is greatly grieved, and we are told that he prays all night. He cried out to the Lord all night. Notice Samuel, he's clearly going to be tasked with having a difficult conversation with Saul, and Saul's not going to like it. He's not going to receive it well. But notice, 
even though Samuel's going to be saying very difficult things to Saul, he's not saying it because he hates Saul. He's not, he's not saying it because there's any animus against Saul in particular. He, he really is grieved for Saul, and he is even praying for him, even as he knows he has to deliver this, this terrible news uh, to him. Uh, and it's, a, of course, a good lesson for us always to remember with regard to the Word of God that it is hard words are said in the Bible uh, for the sake of the good of God's people. Uh, now, in verses 12 to 31, then, Samuel actually confronts Saul. So Samuel goes to Saul in verses 12 and 13, and uh, they, they greet each other. Saul is very pleased with himself. He believes, even to this point, that he has obeyed God, that he has actually given to God a good service. Now, this then sparks a, a round of, of argumentation where Samuel will say one thing, Saul will say another, and um, they, will, they will go back and forth, and we'll, we'll look at these in turn to illustrate uh, what sort of a, what sort of service God does in fact accept, and so there is this, this uh, you know very famous uh, exchange that Saul and Samuel have. He says, "Blessed are you of the Lord. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord." And Samuel uh, very memorably says, "You know, if you've obeyed the voice of the Lord, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear?" The point is very simply, uh, if you were commanded to destroy everything, uh, how could you have obeyed if I am hearing sheep? And hearing oxen. Now, here is where we get uh, Saul's first response, where you'll notice all throughout this this chapter, he is going to try to, to defend his own actions. He will he will double down. He will say, you know, uh, I may have done this, but actually, I have obeyed uh, over and over again. He will say that he has obeyed. And what he says in verse fifteen, you know, is he says uh, he says that you know they're they're basically the things that you hear are from the Amalekites, and um, we spared them. For the sake of service to God. That's the thing that he is claiming. Notice, we, we, we spared the best and we're sparing the best in order to sacrifice these things to God. And, uh, you know, therefore, you know, the, the implication is God cannot be angry with me. I've, I've actually I've won the battle. I've defeated the Amalekites. They're utterly laid to waste. Uh, and, and yet even the things that, you know, you may say is not technically obedience, um, it was done with the intention of serving God. I'm actually giving to God extravagant worship with these things uh, that came from the Amalekites. You'll notice then what Samuel says in response. Samuel says that he's going to tell Saul what God had told him. And basically what he says is that all of these excuses are insufficient. He says, you know, when you were little in your own eyes, you'll remember that all throughout the early chapters of Saul's introduction, beginning in chapter 9, that uh, Saul appeared to be very humble. He appeared to be small in his own eyes. And, you know, Samuel's reminding him of that. He says, you know, you were the head of the tribes of Israel at that point, and God anointed you king. And now, now you are, though you appear to be humble at the beginning, now you are rebelling against God. You are not obeying what God has, has said. Your mission was to destroy the Amalekites, and you did not obey. And so Samuel asked him, you know, why did you swoop down on the spoil and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? He had commanded you utterly to obey, uh, to, to destroy uh, all of, the, of Amalek and even all that they had. The, the purpose even of the full destruction is meant, is because it was meant to be a picture of the final judgment. That is, it's just an utterly complete devastation and destruction where there can be none who can escape because that is the reality of the final judgment. There are none who can escape it. And that, that's what they were that's what Saul was tasked with showing forth. And what's, what's, what Samuel is saying is, is that you have failed. Now you'll notice, even here, after Samuel has confronted him, 
now again and showing him even exactly where it is that he has sinned. Notice Samuel, Saul doubles down again. He says, I have obeyed in verse 20. I destroyed them. I brought back Agag, the king, and the people took the plunder of the best things to sacrifice to the Lord. And notice very interestingly, uh, to the Lord, your God, to the Lord, your God, not the Lord, my God. And the point is, is that he's saying, you know, I obeyed. He's even trying to shift the blame. It's, it's not even I who took it. It's actually the people that took it. Uh, uh, they disobeyed, but, you know, even their disobedience can be excused because they took it for the sake of sacrifice. Uh, that is what Saul is arguing. And this is where we get the very famous response of Samuel, which is uh, the great principle that, that stands over uh, really all of the Bible about what kind of service God requires. What kind of service does God require? After all this argumentation, all these excuses, uh, this is what we see in verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. This is the point of really the entire text. All of 1 Samuel 15 is that obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Service to God must be done in accordance with the word of God. Now, just, just consider what Saul is actually doing. If you did not have this principle, everything that he is doing appears to be good. Uh, he is not sacrificing to other gods. Notice that. He is sacrificing to the one true God. Notice even further, in, in, the, in, Moses, in the Mosaic law, there was a requirement that the things that you sacrifice to God had to be the best. And Saul is taking only the best, and he's sacrificing only those best things uh, for the Lord. Everything that he is doing appears to be, and again, even appears to be extravagant. He is, he is taking a lot of these, of, uh, of these best things and giving them directly to the Lord. It, 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 with, with any other way of thinking about this, you would think, wow, Saul has a great zeal for God. He's doing a lot for God. He's, not, he's certainly not worshiping Baal. He's, he's certainly not giving God the cheap stuff. He's giving the best of all that he has to God. And yet, it is the thing that loses him the kingdom. Why? Because it was not commanded. God did not command it. It appears that it is good in every way except for one great problem. It was not commanded by God. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter if you are sacrificing everything you have for God, you could be giving up everything you have for God. If it is not a service to God that is based upon the word of God, it is not acceptable to him. And even further, further consider, again, everything else. If you, in any other context, Saul's service would have been considered great worship. And notice then, the one point in which he's failing is just, it wasn't commanded. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was in the word of God. Notice then, he does not get a small reprimand for that. That this one principle is the only point where he's falling short. And it's not to say, you know, um, you, you misunderstood this and, um, you know, it's okay. Next time, you know, do it a little bit better. And, you know, you actually need to obey everything that God has said. But, you know, you were right to, to sacrifice to God and you're right to give the best to him. That's not what was said. He loses the entire kingdom over this. This one principle, this one failure at this one point. He loses the entire kingdom, and God says he will strip the entire kingdom from Saul. It is not a small part of the service to God. 
It is everything. The point that is being made is that obedience is everything. And this is even the point that, that Samuel is making in verse 13, uh, verse 23. If there is a service to God that is not obedience, it is like witchcraft. It's, it is like idolatry and iniquity. If there is not obedience to the word of God, it is not small things. It doesn't matter even if you're trying to give a zealous service to the one true God. If it is not commanded in the Bible, it is not a service that he accepts. It's not even a, a service that he is re remotely pleased with. It is something that the Lord detests. And brothers and sisters, this is the reason why the doctrine of sola scriptura is so important. Why it is so important when we think about our service to God, it must be defined by God himself. The question we must ask is, where is it in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible that God requires that I do this particular thing? And when I see it in the Bible, I am going to do that thing. I'm going to do it with all my heart. I'm going to do it zealously. But I'm not going to try to offer God a service for something that is not found in the Bible. Brothers and sisters, as you think about your own life and the, the things that you do for God, this is an important thing to, to think about and to evaluate. Are you are you offering God service that is consistent with what the Bible teaches? This is the standard for all duties that God has given to us. It must be according to the word of God. Now, from there then, in verses 26 and following, you'll notice that there is this, this sort of metaphorical uh, or symbolic removal of the kingdom. So you'll, you'll notice that uh, after this declaration that uh, Saul will lose the kingdom, it's symbolically played out. Uh, Saul asked Samuel to return with him. Saul, uh, Samuel refuses. As Samuel turns to go, he grasps at, at, at Samuel's robes. He, uh, the part of his robes uh, tear off. Samuel then uh, declares to Saul that he will lose the kingdom. The kingdom has been torn from you, even as the, 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 the robe had been torn, and that God will give it to an, another. Now, as we think about this just even a little bit further, it's important for us to ask, uh, the question, not, not just the principle of um, what kind of service is required that God accepts, but it's important for us also to ask, um, why did Saul disobey? What was his motivation? Why did he do it? Because what, what we have to recognize is that the things that tempted Saul towards disobedience are the things that tempt us today too. We, we find ourselves often in very similar circumstances, and you actually see this in a couple of different places, and particularly right before this symbolic removal of the kingdom, and even again right after. You'll notice in verse 24 in particular, Saul says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord and your, uh, and your words. Notice what he says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people. What was it that caused him to disobey, it was the fear of God. The point is, is that there is, this is a general principle. This is a principle that can be applied to every area of life. The fear of man leads to the disobedience of God. The fear of man leads to, to the disobedience of God. Seeking to avoid offending people often leads to offending God. And that, that, that is what we see all throughout the scriptures. Uh, Saul feared what the people would say. He did not want to offend them. Therefore, he settled for offending God. And that's the reason why the sin is, is so great. Now, this doesn't mean we need to go out of our way to offend people. We, of course, don't want to do that. But we must recognize that obedience to God will offend some. If you care, if the thing that you care about more than anything else 
is the way you appear in the eyes of men, then you are on the path towards disobedience. And, and what will happen is, is that there will be an attempt to honor man and then backfill your disobedience to God with a theology that can justify your disobedience. That's exactly what Saul does here. He says, hey, I'm, I'm scared of the people. And you know, what if I didn't do everything that God said, but then I took what God wanted me to destroy and actually gave it back to him? What if I sacrificed to God? That would seem to be a way where I could be honored in the sight of the people and I can show myself to be zealous for God. And brothers and sisters, such, such is the way in which the church goes astray with regard to its worship. A, a, a lack of willingness to offend people when it is necessary. Again, we, we're not trying to offend people, but the point is that if there is a situation where the church must stand for something that, that will be offensive, will we compromise or will we not? Saul said, Saul said, I'm gonna compromise and then figure out a way to justify that compromise before God. That is what he's trying to do. Notice, he doesn't, even, he doesn't even understand that this is where he's gone astray. He admits in verse 24 that this is the case, this is the reason why he sinned. But notice, at the end of the text, he still cares about what other people think of him. Even though he, he just admitted that this is the reason why he sinned. Notice in verses 30 and 31, he says, I have sinned, yet, notice the request. Why, why does Saul want Samuel to come back with him? I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. The point is that the, the parting request that Saul has, he's still concerned with the way in which the people see him. Look, if, if you turn away from me, if you don't come back with me, it's gonna look bad for me before all these people. They're, they're gonna look and they're gonna say, God's not with him because Samuel has just rebuked him. And so I, I need you to be, to come back with me so that when the people see us going together, they'll see that I can be honored still as king. He's concerned with the way people see him. And thus is the way the church goes astray in, in every age. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is very, very common. People fear man more than God and so disobey God in ways that appear to be small in order to save face with men. Then they justify their actions as being essentially obedient to God, even if not 100%. This sort of argumentation has been used in recent, in, in recent decades to uh, end up, uh, we end up seeing the church support abortions and women's ordination and homosexuality. Uh, every sort of, of worship practice that the Lord detests and hates uh, begins with this sort of argumentation. It begins with this sort of argumentation, a desire not to offend man and then to create a theology that backfills a disobedience to God and characterizes it as a true and zealous sacrifice for God. But brothers and sisters, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Do not fear man, rather receive the word of God as it's been given and simply obey. That is the thing that is required of us. Samuel shows himself to be very different from Saul in verses 32 through 35. He carries out the Lord's instructions. He confronted Saul and finished the job in killing Agag. The text then says that Samuel and Saul departed from each other and they would never see each other again. Uh, Samuel is clearly grieved in his heart because of what has happened. Uh, he's, he's obviously had to speak this very difficult word. And yet, you, yet you'll note that the text does, uh, does explicitly say that Samuel mourned for Saul. Uh, it, it was something that, that uh, greatly distressed him. 
And yet, uh, even here, we see that what, what gave Samuel the, the strength to be able to confront Saul was because Samuel did not fear man. Samuel did not fear man. He was willing to say what needed to be said to Saul, regardless of what came. And even, even if Saul would think that Samuel hated him, yet Samuel is going to say it. He's going to say it in boldness for the sake of Saul and then continue to pray for him all the days of his life. Now, brothers and sisters, at this point, it's important to remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that he tells us in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But you'll notice what the text says next. But those who do the will of my Father in heaven, those who obey. Now, the text is not trying to speak about works righteousness. That's not the point. The, the point is that the basic quality of the believer in general is obedience. That is, that is something that the believer does doesn't do it perfectly, it doesn't merit anything by it, but this is, this is the quality that is true of believers in general. Believers are those who say that Jesus is Lord, and then they obey him as the Lord. You'll remember what, uh, what Christ then goes on to say. There are many who will say to me in that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did, didn't we, did we not teach all these wonderful things in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do these great acts of service in your name? Now, the implication there is, is that, yes, they did those things, but notice, they are not those who did the will of God because those are the people that Christ accepts. That is to say, they are claiming to have very sincere and zealous service of God that cannot be characterized as obedience. What does Christ say to those people? On that day, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, depart from me. What, 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 this is the, the exact same thing that, that, that is being taught in this text. What then, what, what's the difference between these different kinds of service of God? It is merely obedience to the word of God. This is the reason why then Christ will say later, uh, the, the very next passage, that it is those who hear the word of God and do it. They are like those who build their house upon the rock. And when the stormy winds of the judgment come, their house will not fall. It is, it is, the world will be divided along who actually obeys the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is willing to obey. Remember what, what Isaiah himself says, uh, where, where God speaking through Isaiah says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who trembles at my word. He who trembles at my word. This is the one who will be blessed. Brothers and sisters, may God grant you the grace so to receive the word of God and to obey it. Let's pray. Father, oh Father, Lord, we do pray that you would, that you would grant us a heart always to obey your word, uh, to be zealous, to be about the things that you have commanded and Lord, we, we do, we, we, we recognize, we, we, we feel the weight and the pressure with regard to the temptation of, uh, of taking too much account of what men think of us to do things to please men. Now, Lord, very often we find ourselves operating in the fear of men. Lord, grant to us, grant to us rather to say that we, we, we will simply obey you and we will not seek to uh, to avoid offending men and end up offending you. Lord, grant to us true hearts of obedience that our service to you would be always be characterized by obedience to, to the word of God. Help us to receive this warning well, this negative example of Saul, 
that, that we might actually find uh, ourselves uh, blessed being those of whom the Lord Jesus Christ enters into his kingdom and says, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of your master. Lord, grant that we would hear those words and grant us in this regard too the new heart wherein we obey you. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.